Father, you have already shown us uh, great treasures, great and awesome insights into your character as we've looked into your word. Father, once more, we pray that you would open our eyes. Lord, we we long that our lives would be a consistent, uh, a real, a passionate response to who you are. And so we pray, Father, that we would we would see you as you are, a holy God, this morning. And we would long to live in the light of that. Amen. Uh, who's seen the film The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, the the one they made of the Narnia? Most people seen it. The I think um, I actually really enjoyed it. And I think the most powerful scene in the film by a mile in terms of the sort of just real cinematography was the death of Aslan. So it's this dark night up at the stone table and it's lit just with torches and casting eerie shadows. And as Aslan paces his way slowly up the hill, uh, he's surrounded by this, uh, this foul army of, uh, just filthy beings of, uh, of demons and witches and warlocks and werewolves. And there, and there's just hatred and utter disgust for him as he as he walks into the middle of this murderous mob uh, and the chanting starts and there's a slow drumbeat building and he's he's shamed humiliated they shave all his uh, his great mane off he's beaten and attacked and spat on and finally he's bound on the stone table and the the chanting and the the shrieks and the howls they grow louder and louder and louder until finally the witch plunges the knife into his heart and there's just this deafening bellow as she sort of is drunk with her victory over him and shouts and screams with delight and it's the next day it's in the middle of the final battle that she is uh, suddenly overcome as she sees Aslan back to life, uh, beyond what anything she could have understood. And it's then, at that moment, that she is destroyed. And I think, in our minds, we think it's, it's like that with the cross. We think uh, resurrection, that's the moment of Jesus' victory. That's when Jesus, like Aslan, comes back to life and Satan suddenly realizes that he's been tricked, in one sense, that he's lost that he is utterly defeated but we think that uh, at his death if you like the stock market indicator of satan's mood is at its absolute peak as jesus dies at that point he's drunk on the thrill and the power of his humiliating victory over christ hovering triumphantly over that dead body on the cross it's only later on sunday morning that satan is confounded but that is not quite the way the Bible tells it. See, for sure, the Bible says that uh, Jesus' victory, um, his resurrection is victory. It's the vindication of the Son of God. Absolutely, that's his victory. But the Bible is equally clear that Jesus' death itself is, its mo- is a moment of his great victory. So we looked at a couple of weeks ago in our studies at Colossians 2.15. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, not by the resurrection, but by the cross. Or a little later, in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Revelation 12 
verse 10 and 11. Uh, The accuser has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb, by his death. In other words, it is at Jesus' death. It says the moment that he dies that the smile is wiped off Satan's face. It is at the moment that Jesus dies that a crushing blow is landed on Satan's head. It's actually as Jesus breathes his last that Satan is flung down into the dust and his mouth is filled with his own blood and a great gaping mortal wound appears on Satan's head, a wound from which he will never recover, although his final death has not yet come. It is the cross that is the victory of Jesus Christ. So I'm just going to have to move this because I can't read my notes. The cross is the victory not just the resurrection, it's the cross. But in what sense is the cross victory? Now, the first thing I think we need to understand that is to, is to understand what Satan's power is. Satan is not another god, like you've got dark god and good god. And Satan is an equal, uh, equal god that God is wrestling with in this great cosmic titanic struggle. It's not like that. Satan's a creature. He's a very powerful creature, but nonetheless, he is a creature. And broadly in the Bible, Satan has two powers two really significant powers and they are the power to accuse and the power to tempt he has the power to accuse and he has the power to tempt so um revelation twelve ten, the passage uh, we just looked at satan is called the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses before our god day and night so satan is the the prosecution that stands in god's courtroom day and night saying guilty I know what they did. I've seen what she did. I saw what he said. Guilty. And in Matthew 4, 3, when the devil comes in the wilderness to Jesus, he's called the tempter. So he can tempt you and me to sin. And when we give in to temptation, he can accuse us of our guilt before God. But that is basically his power. Okay, so how does the cross bring triumph in those two areas? We'll think of this, the second, the, the power over temptation as we look at Romans 6, but we'll begin uh, firstly with victory over Satan's accusations, victory over his accusations. And for that we turn to Colossians 2, but firstly Zechariah 3. So Zechariah 3, just before Matthew's Gospel, Zechariah chapter 3. And what we see here is that the cross brings victory over Satan's accusations because the cross deals with you or with our guilt, with the guilt that you and I have before God. So Zechariah 3, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel the angel said to those who were standing before him take off his filthy clothes then he said to joshua see i have taken away your sin and i will put fine garments on you so you see in verse three that his filthy clothes are are a picture of his sin that's made explicit in verse three Uh, it's as if his inner moral filth is displayed in his outer clothing and so Satan is able to accuse him, says, look, you can see he's filthy, God. You can't have that filth in your presence. But Satan is silenced because God takes off his filthy clothes and clothes him in clean white linen. A picture of the swap at the cross as Jesus takes upon himself our filth and clothes us in his righteousness. And that leaves Satan with nothing to accuse. He stood there with 
perfect righteousness stood beside him. He can't accuse us of sin because Jesus took our sin away. He can't accuse us of not being righteous because Jesus has clothed us in his righteousness. And because at the cross Jesus took that punishment and gave us his righteousness, the cross is the victory. Oh, Colossians 2, which we... um. Uh, we just read Colossians two, thirteen to 15. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In other words, Jesus disarmed Satan at the cross. He took away his great weapon of accusation, snatched it from his hands and snapped it in two. Satan, therefore, has no power to drag us to hell. Satan can't condemn anybody to hell, but Satan can accuse us before God who can condemn us. And when he loses the power of accusation, he loses all his power. So as Jesus died, he destroyed Satan's power to accuse and condemn us. Uh, but actually, um, okay, at this moment, if your head's feeling a bit, uh, gosh, I haven't looked at the cross for years or properly ever at all, um, and I'm just, well, you can switch off for a couple of minutes. If it's all very familiar, here's another, here's perhaps something slightly fresher and newer for you. There is another way in which the cross is the victory of Christ over Satan. Because there is another sort of accusation that Satan can bring, this time not against us so much, but against God. Uh, Let me show you by uh, asking a question. What would have happened if God had just decided to be just and wiped out the cosmos? If God had simply been just and instead of sending his son to forgive us, he just wiped us all out condemned us and eternally wiped us out. Satan couldn't accuse God of failing to be just, could he? What could Satan accuse God of if all God had been is just, destroyed us as we deserve? Not loving us, but we don't deserve God's love. But there is something that Satan could accuse God of. You see, Genesis 1.26, God appointed humanity. He created and appointed humanity, and he gave a commission. He, he said what his purpose in creation was. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock of all the wild animals, over all the creatures of the ground. God said to them, verse 28, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over it. God appointed humanity to rule the earth for him. His purpose was that he would have uh, representative rulers filling his cosmos for him. And if all God does is wipe us out, then Satan can say, you have failed God. You created and you failed. Your creation is an utter failure. You cannot do what you determined to do. But at the cross, God is able to fulfill his purpose for creation, while at the same time upholding his justice and his love. Because Jesus Christ takes the condemnation that humans, the rulers who forfeited our position, deserve. And therefore, uh, in Christ, we can retake up our position as those who will rule the universe for God. 
And so Satan not only loses the power to accuse Jesus, uh, to accuse God at the cross, um, Satan not only loses the power to accuse you and me at the cross of our guilt, he also loses the power to accuse God of failure as God fulfills his purposes through sending Christ to die for sin. Okay. Come back if you've uh, if you've switched off for a nice two minute nap. Um, so the cross is God's victory against Satan's accusations. But something that I think we'll see again and again in this talk is there is a difference between what is true and what feels true. What is true and what feels true. So when we sin, and I guess we'll all know it if we've been Christians for a while, when you remember certain sins from the past, that crushing weight of guilt returns. And you feel condemned. And you feel far from God. And you feel fear about God. It's like this. Uh, Satan's accusations are basically a gun that he holds to your head. <laughs> uh, Satan's accusations are a gun. Uh, I've once in my life been held up uh, with a gun in my face. And to, um, to be rather British, it is a distinctly unpleasant experience. Um, uh, but here is the thing. The bullets in the gun that give the gun its power are our guilt driven by God's law that's what's in the gun and is actually dangerous about it at the cross Jesus absorbs in himself he takes the shot he takes the bullet for us at the cross and then Satan has no bullets left so Satan can squeeze the trigger but there's nothing left in it Jesus absorbed all the bullets. It's still pretty scary when Satan points his gun of of accusation, you're guilty, God's going to condemn you, you deserve hell. It's scary having a gun stuck in your face by Satan. But there's nothing in it anymore. Don't be surprised we feel afraid, because when you sin, and when you hear Satan's voice in your conscience, it is terrifying. Because we know that sin deserves condemnation. We know that our sins are foul and wicked and God hates sin. But don't forget that there's nothing in the gun anymore. Jesus took the bullet for us. And Satan can threaten all he likes, but there is nothing left in his gun. His power is gone. Trust instead in Christ's victory. Trust in the truth that we saw yesterday. But now, but now I am justified. I am redeemed. My sin is atoned and I am in God's family. Satan has no power. Now there's a second victory um, that Satan uh, suffers at the cross, that Jesus wins victory over Satan's temptations. And this brings us to Romans 6. Now um, Romans 6 doesn't mention Satan's temptations at all. It never mentions them. But what it does mention is um, the power of sin... And the addictive nature of sin and Jesus' victory over that. In other words, it says the power to tempt is broken because the addiction of sin is gone. The power to tempt is broken because the addiction, the addiction, the power of sin is gone. That's the big point. It's a big, rich chapter with lots in it. But the big point, the power of sin is broken. Sin no longer masters or rules you if you trust in Jesus Christ. We're set free. Uh, now Satan is the powerful personal force that stands behind all sin and sin is presented in this chapter uh, there's five things so you'll see them in a little thing um, sin is a power that grips and controls us throughout the chapter he's the king who reigns over us 6 verse 12 
He is the slave owner we serve, 6 verse 6 and 16. He is the general whose weapons we are. And he is the employer whose wages are death at the end of the chapter. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But two simple points and a conclusion. Um, First, you have died to sin with Christ. You have died to sin with Christ. It's not an instruction. You must die to sin. It's a fact. You have. Verses 1 to 4. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? He's picking up the argument of chapter 5. Um, that as, a, as awful and huge as our sin is, uh, God's grace is even greater. So, oh, maybe if I, the more I sin, the more God's grace gets shown. No, no, no. Uh, let's, by no means, verse 2. We are those who have died, who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Well, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Baptism symbolizes being united with Christ. And it symbolizes joining him in his death and dying to our old life. Um, I saw it particularly powerfully at another weekend away years ago on a slightly warmer day, I'm glad to say, at an outdoor swimming pool when a guy had been coming to church for years, was finally converted. Uh, and he said, why, why should I wait? And the minister said, no, actually, you've been around church for years. You know it all. You're just finally ready. And so we went out at the end of the session and uh, we had a baptism that afternoon. But he was very tall. And as the two elders baptizing him stepped over to lower him, they stepped onto the slope of the pool and we really did get a picture of them just going down into death and they just disappeared it was like okay they're gone for quite a while and they emerged spluttering to the surface but yeah you go down into death that's baptism you go down you die that's what it pictures your old sinful life died the day you were baptized that's what you see but we also share in his resurrection life so you died in one sense the day you were baptized in another sense in the day that christ was killed your life was nailed to that cross outside jerusalem your old life and now you have new life in christ again these are facts not commands facts not commands you have new life And in that new life, you're not a slave to sin. Verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know the old self was crucified with him, so the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. The death he died, uh, death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. We look forward to Jesus' resurrection, verses 5 and verse 8, and sharing in it. And verse 4 says we already share in that new life now. He was raised so that we may have a new life. We already live a new life, these verses say. If you trust in Jesus, you have been born again. That's why in baptism we don't just hold people under and say, your old life is dead. There we go. (laughs) Properly dead. We also bring people back out of the water. And you have a new life in Christ. It would be kind of a depressing ceremony otherwise. Um, But you have a new life in Christ. And so we bring people up out of the water, uh, which is a, a much more exciting moment. That's why people cheer. 
And Paul's implication is, you've died, your old life is dead, you have a new life with Christ, so stop serving sin because you're free. John 8.36, Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. And Paul argues from what is true of Christ to what is true of us. Verses 8 to 10, sin and death no longer hold Jesus because he has died to sin once for all and he's risen to a new life. Verse 11, the same is true for us. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Live like you're free. Count yourself dead to sin. Stop serving sin, verses 12 to 14. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body, so you obey its evil desires. Don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under law but under grace." Satan has no power over you at all now. He cannot accuse you successfully, and he cannot tempt you irresistibly. He can still tempt, and as we know, we're all still stupid enough that we give in regularly. But there is a difference now, because the addictive power of sin is broken. We no longer have to obey That little box at the bottom, there are three P's for sin that it's really important to get clear in your head. Sin has a penalty, deserves death. Sin has a power, we are addicted to it. And sin has a presence, you know, we do it. Uh, Sin is present in our lives. Two of those are gone at the cross. The penalty is paid and the power is broken. And we confuse the bottom two. We think if... Sin is present in my life. It has power over me. It doesn't. It has no power. Uh, Imagine a heroin addict. If you can't imagine a heroin addict, um, it is like coffee, um, but even stronger. I kid you not. Um, So imagine a heroin addict. Um, You've got a recovered addict and a junkie. You take the junkie and offer them heroin. They can actually resist. You know, if you, if you offer them heroin every 10 minutes, they can actually resist. The problem is, the addiction means that they just in practice don't. The power is such that they, they don't exercise their will to resist. They give in and they shoot up. Now, you offer a recovered junkie heroin and they feel a horrendous deep tug right in their guts, a longing. Uh, delicious, dark, dangerous longing. But as a recovered addict, they have the power now to resist. The addiction is broken. So they might give in, but actually they don't have to anymore. So why do we still sin then if we are recovered addicts? We sin because we forget who we are and we forget what Christ has done. We forget, how would I ever sin if I thought I am dead to sin? I live under a new power now. We forget who we are and we forget what Christ has done. And there's a a great film came out, uh, I think, two years ago called The Railway Man. It's got nothing to do with being um, a train spotter before we even start on that. Uh, Nothing to do with that at all. It's um, it's about um, a guy called Eric Lomax, who was a Scottish soldier, very young soldier at the start of the Second World War. And he was captured in Singapore when the Japanese army swept through. 
and he was taken um, to work on the Burma Railway, which was basically living hell. Uh, they lived uh, brutalised, barely fed, tortured, beaten, naked, being worked to literal death, um, building this railway through an impenetrable jungle uh, and rock faces. It was absolute living hell. And there were some guards in particular who took absolute pleasure in brutalising um, the soldiers who they despised for uh, for surrendering. And he endured this hell for four or five years and then was eventually released at the end of the war and moved back to Scotland. But the problem was uh, he got married happily, um, uh, but the problem was that he lived in these nightmares. Uh, he would go to sleep and the prison commander, the, the guard who had so tortured him, would reappear. And he lived as just a slave to these horrific memories. And he was broken. It was going to trash his marriage. He was absolutely killed by it. Uh, psychologically, he was he was a ruined man. And his wife eventually realized that the uh, uh, what she needed to do, she uh, she went and took him out to Thailand, uh, to Burma, to to where the uh, the camp was. And he went back into uh, the room where they were tortured. And he met with the guard who had done it. He had to go to his torture chamber and meet his tormentor to realise this man has no power over me anymore. For 30 odd years I think he was, he was a slave to a broken power. Completely incapable of realising that this guy had no power over him. None whatsoever. And yet his life was ruined, destroyed, blighted, relationships trashed by something that had no power anymore. Now, you and I don't go to a torture chamber and meet our tormentor, Satan. We go back to the cross, the symbol of someone else's torture, and we meet our saviour. And every time we go to the cross, we see the power of Satan is broken. The power is broken. And a lot of us have lived and continue to live like the railway man, Eric Lomax. A power that once destroyed our lives, sin, Satan and we allow it to still destroy us. We allow ourselves to live as if we are still under its power, as if we still have to obey, as if Satan can still torment and condemn. Go back to the torture chamber, the cross. Go back not to the tormentor, but the saviour, the redeemer, and realise Satan has no power. All he can do is lie and accuse and tempt and Jesus Christ is the truth who sets you free. Live in freedom. Live in freedom. The cross is the victory of Christ. It was a victory achieved by dying in our place and breaking the power of Satan to accuse and tempt. You are no longer a slave of sin. The power, the principle, the penalty is all gone. Although the presence remains, the power is gone. And there is victory, therefore, in our struggles and hurts and disappointments and failures because we know that sin does not have the last word. Satan has a mortal wound. He is bleeding out at the moment. And no one can save him. Satan is in palliative care. And sin has no power. So don't give it power. Now, I think there are a number of things we learn about the character of God here. 
but perhaps the most significant is the holiness of God. Look how determined God is to get rid of sin. If God just was a God full of love and justice, uh, he might, um, in love, save sinners, and he might, in justice, send his son to suffer the punishment for sin. And then, you know what, what happens between when I save you and when you get to heaven doesn't really matter. Um, I love you, uh, and I'm so pleased you're going to be safe in heaven. I'm just, so I had to punish my son to do it. Um, carry on living how you like, and I'll see you in heaven. But God's not like that. He's also a God of immense holiness. And it's not enough for God that we are uh, saved and safe for heaven. He wants sin gone. He hates sin. And so God is determined not just to save you from the penalty of sin. He wants the power of sin broken. He wants uh, not just that you sin a bit less, but that you're sinless. That's his great work. And he is at work to do that. He broke the power of Satan so that you and I would not live in sin any longer. Philippians 1.6, we're told uh, that he who began a good work will carry it on until the day of completion. That is God's great mission and great aim. Satan's aim is that you sin. God's aim is that you live in freedom and holiness. That's what God is in the business of. So don't think sin doesn't matter because you're a Christian. Don't think that sin is a small thing. God hates sin. And that's why he set you free. So that you wouldn't have to to live in misery and torture any longer. But that you could live like his son. That you could revel in your freedom. And that you could know the fullness of life that comes from his saviour. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that the cross is victory, is triumph of God. Father, thank you that Satan's accusations no longer hold any power, that there are no bullets in his gun anymore. Thank you too that the uh, the power of sin over us is broken. Father, in both these areas we uh, we struggle to feel the things we know to be true. And so we pray that you would help us to have a much clearer view of the cross, that we would not feel guilty because we know we've been justified, redeemed and atoned. And Father, please, would we stop living as if we cannot stop sinning? Because as we look to the cross, I pray that we would see Christ breaking the power of sin, setting us free, giving us his spirit so that we might live in his way, in the freedom of the Son of God. And our Father, we thank you so much that one day we'll be free, not just from the penalty and power, but even the presence of sin. Uh, We'll no longer ruin relationships with our selfishness. We'll no longer um, do things that make us just feel shamed and dirty. That we'll no longer uh, find ourselves just unable to do what we long to do, unable to be who we long to be. We thank you that day is coming, and we pray that we would live in the light of that, And know the power of your spirit as we fight today. Amen.